Welcome to Hope for Life, a broadcast ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington, bringing you hope for life through the teaching of God's Word. Today, Pastor Lunsford is continuing his sermon series in the book of Hebrews. If you would like to follow along, you can open your Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Yesterday, I brought this fine specimen of tennis paraphernalia to my office. This tennis racket was given to me by my dad. See, he's old. He doesn't even remember giving it to me now. But I played on the tennis team in high school. And uh, I didn't know much about tennis before I went on the tennis team. And the coach told us, now, here's how you buy a tennis racket. It's, you know, the more little plies of wood, and then there's fabric layer. He told us all about what a good tennis racket was and about how they string them and all this. And, uh, you know, I got to say, it was one of those times when my dad really surprised me. He came home with just about top-of-the-line tennis racket for me. I went, yes! And the same year is when they started making metal tennis rackets. (laughs) And then, of course, they've gone on to now composite materials. And, of course, if you know anything about tennis rackets, the head on this one's pretty small. And what you may not know is that the the big deal about the new tennis rackets and the new materials has to do with the center of the racket. The center right in here is the sweet spot. See, if you hit the ball right there, it's the optimum place to hit the ball. Has the most push off the strings, the most control of whatever. And the problem with these old wooden rackets is the sweet spot is pretty small. But the bigger the racket, the bigger the sweet spot. It's that wonderful place when you grab the ball and you just feel it go right off the racket, the sweet spot. My old racket became obsolete because the sweet spot was too small. What I want to say to you today from Hebrews chapter 4 is this, God has a sweet spot for your life. There is a place where your life is at its optimal experience its optimal performance it's the optimal place he has designed for your life to be and he calls that rest he calls it rest follows i read from hebrews 4 therefore since a promise remains of entering his rest let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it for indeed The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. He has said, as he has said, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today! After such a long time, as it has been said, today, 
If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now throughout this passage, you have to understand that he's referring back to the same people that is, the people of God in the Old Testament, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites who came out of Egypt. He's referring back to them and their experience when he talks about um, that I swore they shall not enter my rest. And when he talks about people who failed to achieve or to enter into God's rest, he's talking about those people as an example for us. We've been through this several times, as God's talked about it several times in this passage in chapter 3, about how the people of God put faith in God when he said in, in, at the time I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, be in your house, slaughter the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, be inside, eat the meal, be ready, because I'm going to deliver you by sending the death angel to kill the firstborn of Egypt. And then after that, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt. And so... A, I guess we would say the majority, as far as we know, of God's people, of the Jewish people, did that. And then they came out into the desert. God intended for them to be there and to get his law and then to just keep marching right on. About ten days later, they would have been in Israel. What we call Israel today, it was called Canaan then. They would have been there. They would have conquered the land. They would have conquered the land the same way they conquered the Egyptians. How did they do that? God did it for them. That's what he intended. He intended for them to come out of slavery and go into a place of blessing. That is the illustration of God's rest. God's rest encompasses two things primarily, if we were to summarize it down. It encompasses the deliverance from sin through our salvation and the living of the godly life in Christ. In this passage, I believe God is talking about both of those. I don't think we can separate them. As we think about God's sweet spot of rest for us, I have tried to break it down into several parts to help you get a grip on it. And the first is this. The meaning of God's rest is that we rest from trying to earn heaven. Could the Jewish people, the Israelites in Egypt, could they have revolted and thrown off Egypt as an oppressive country and delivered themselves? No, they couldn't do it, in part because they had no weapons, and in part because they weren't soldiers, and in part because they were a minority group, not a majority group. 
It was not possible for them to deliver themselves. Is it possible for you to deliver yourself from the slavery of sin? No. It's not any more possible for you than it was for them. God's rest is when we rest from trying to earn salvation or heaven, however you would put it. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You may not know which people in the world are working feverishly to make sure they enter heaven, but they're out there. Some of them are in those religions that come knocking on your door because they've been told they better get busy or they're not going to make it. And they're working and working and working. You know what the real labor of that is, though? The real labor is when you lay down at night and you've been reading the paper all day and you're, and you're wondering if President Bush is going to pull the trigger on this war and if the terrorists are going to respond and if you're going to wake up needing to put duct tape and plastic on your doors and not knowing what's going to happen if that stuff gets inside your house and where you're going to end up. That's the labor of trying to earn heaven. It's not knowing what's going to happen. It's worrying about it. Jesus said, come to me. You can rest. Not, I, I hope we don't have to go to war, and I certainly hope no terrorist explodes anything in my neighborhood. I doubt I'm on a first strike list. But you know what? I'm ready. And I'm not ready because what I've been doing, I'm ready because Jesus paid for my sin. I can rest in him. That is a sweet spot to live. And if you're not living in that rest today, you're like one of these folks here who he's warning, saying, be careful that you don't miss the rest that God has for you. If you're here today and you're not resting in Christ, oh, please, let us help you know for certain how you can know Christ as your Savior so you can rest. Secondly, rest is from the anxieties of life. Jesus said this in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. One of the things that's a little frustrating to me is, is to hear folks talk about how we should negotiate and spend time trying to work through our differences some of these folks like the terrorists. That is the worldly way to gain peace. Let's work this out. I, it's hard for me because I'm thinking, I just don't know if that's possible. But you know, the worldly way to have peace is to get rid of conflict. And no doubt, when, there's, when the conflict is gone, there's peace. What do you think the likelihood is that in your life, you're going to get to a spot where there's never any more conflict. <laughs> what do you think the likelihood is in our country 
that we could possibly get to a point where there's never any more conflict, where people like Saddam Hussein say, hey, no problem, let's live and let live. We love our Jewish brethren just like they love us. Hey, that's just not going to happen. That's why Jesus said, I'm going to give you peace, but not the kind the world gives. The world's kind of peace is the cessation of difficulty, of conflict. Jesus' peace is right in the middle of difficulty. There's an old song by a gal named Nancy Honeytree from when I was first in the ministry. And the song is called Smoking in the Boys' Room, I think. And she goes to school, and she's happy, and she's smiling, and she's carefree. And the principal says, come with me. You must have been smoking in the boys' room. In other words, the only way you could be happy is to be doing something wrong. And she says, mister, you can rattle me, shake me, search me any way you want, but I'm just living in the Lord. I'm at peace in the middle of difficulty. That's the kind of rest that's the sweet spot that God wants us to live in. 1 Peter 5, 7, Jesus said, Cast all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. I bet if we went down the road today, every single person here could tell us about a difficulty or a conflict in their life. Every single one. Some of you might have big, big ones. Some small. Some many. Some few. Jesus said, I want you to have peace. Peace. That is the rest that he offers us. Thirdly, he offers us rest from competing philosophies of life. I, I don't, for those of you who have known the Lord for a while, you may have forgotten how, how wonderful it is that you know what the truth is. Now, you may struggle to do the truth, but you know the truth, and you know what you should be doing. You know what everybody should be doing. It's right here. But people who don't know the Lord struggle to decide, how should I live? Should I follow this teacher? Should I follow that teacher? Should I follow this religion? Should I follow that religion? In Ephesians 4, there are some words written to the church, which belong to all of us as Christians. It says, we are no longer to be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. God has given us the word and the church so that we might grow up and not be driven by these various philosophies and ideas about life. It's so great to get up every morning and know that I'm going to go sit in my chair and look out my window. I feel like I'm getting ready to be an old man because I... I see this lady comes home from being a nurse at the hospital at a certain time every day, and this lady takes a walk every day, and a person comes by and delivers the paper every day. But you know what's so great is I sit in my chair, and I read my Bible, and I say, God, what do you want me to do today? How do you want me to live? Every day. I don't get up in the morning and think, hmm, boy, i got a kind of a difficulty with somebody. I wonder what I should do. I wonder, wonder where I could find out how to do this. No, it's right there in my Bible, in my time with the Lord, every day. It's all right there. I don't have to worry about choosing who I'm going to follow or how I'm going to live. That's tremendous rest. Tremendous rest. Fourthly, and, and we might be able to enumerate more of these things. These are just four that I found to be 
important, I guess. There is rest from the need to leave a legacy. You say, Pastor Dave, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about midlife crisis. And I'm talking about a lot of things. You know what midlife crisis is for a lot of men? They get to about 40 or so, and they look back in their life, and they say, does my life amount to anything? And you know, frankly, if you're an unbeliever, and, and all you've really done with your life is work every day, and you get to that point and you look back, and I could see how you'd say, boy, I've got to do something different. And if my life doesn't amount to anything, I might as well just let go and whatever. There are a lot of people who have children because they want to leave something behind with their name on it. Why are boys so important? Why is it so important for some people to have a boy? Because it's going to be my name. It's going to live on. Well, it's a wonderful thing to have a boy. I have one. I hope you all have one. And, and it's a wonderful thing to live your life every day in simple obedience to God, knowing that I am doing something that lasts because I'm glorifying God, and maybe the world doesn't see the value of what I'm doing, but God does. My legacy is going to be honoring the Lord. Maybe, maybe humanly there will be no legacy at all. It doesn't matter. I think the truth is that when you live for the Lord, you do live a godly legacy. Ruth Smith, her family, one of her, her, her grandsons told me who, who's... He must be 30 or so. He said, you know, she's really left a tremendous legacy in this whole family knowing the Lord. I said, boy, yeah, that's a legacy to leave. God wants to give us rest. He wants to give us rest. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. A number of years ago, a couple of representatives of a certain religious group came knocking on the door of our house when Sue was home alone. And she asked them a very simple question. She said, does your religion teach, or do you know for certain that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Oh, no, nobody can know that for certain. She said, well, my religion teaches I can know for certain I'm going to heaven when I die. So why should I switch from my religion to yours? That really is the essence of the rest that God wants to give us. And all of the rest flows out of it. The godly life flows out of knowing Christ as our Savior. God wants to give us this rest. He wanted to give it to His people in the Old Testament. But they said, no! What do we have to do if we would have God's rest? What is the means of gaining God's rest? Well, the first one is in verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest we come short of it. There are many, many references throughout the Bible to a, a bottom line attitude, a root attitude that we need to have is one of fearing God. We struggle sometimes to define that because we, we don't want to live in fear. We want to live in, in love with God and that sort of thing. And all of that is, is certainly true. But Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I believe that verses 12 and 13 of this chapter really tell us what the fear of God is about. And the first thing the fear of God is about is this. We should fear God because he will judge us. Look at verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I love the old imperial song that says, Well, it won't be old Buddha sitting on the throne, and it won't be old Muhammad that's calling us home. And it won't be Hare Krishna playing that trumpet tune. So let's all just live for Jesus because he's coming back real soon. It's going to be God sitting on the throne judging us. And you know what? That ought to put a certain degree of righteous respect into your heart. The Apostle Paul talked about it in terms of Christian service, and he said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, was it the terror of God toward Paul? No, I think it was, he was looking at the terror of God toward unbelievers. The Proverbs and the Psalms tell us that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We should fear God because he will judge us. Now, once we accept Christ as our Savior... He is not going to judge us in terms of are you getting into heaven or not, but he will be the one evaluating our life as to its reward worthiness. In other words, God is going to reward us for the righteous things that we have done for him in our life, and we will stand while he gives us that reward and and perhaps if we understand all the scripture correctly, all of the sinful works of our life will be burned up in that judgment process. And what is left is the good things that he will reward us for. God is the one who is going to look at our life. If you are not a believer here today, God is the one who is going to evaluate your life. God is the one who is going to decide whether or not you get to go to heaven. And of course, that will be based on whether or not you have accepted Christ as your Savior. He, he expands on this idea that God is going to judge us in verse 12 and 13. And, it, and we understand that we should fear God because he knows us intimately. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. Now, is God trying to teach us in verse 12 that we have a soul and a spirit and a body, that we are a three-part very? No, that is not the point of what he's trying to teach us here. What he's trying to teach us is this, the Word of God can penetrate and discriminate in realms totally inaccessible to the natural man. The point of this passage is that only God, through His Word, can make the proper distinction. God thus knows things about a man which that man cannot discern for himself. 
and that is from a, from a Bible teacher with the name, by the name Gromacki. The word of God can penetrate and discriminate in realms inaccessible to natural man. Now, I, I believe he's talking about this word right here, and I believe he's talking to it as the living word that comes out of his mouth. God's word, God's truth, God and his thoughts can understand you explicitly, intrinsically. The fear that is expected is not the terror of the ungodly who still carry the guilt of sin, but the godly fear which produces soberness and solemn recognition of God's awesomeness. We should perfect holiness in the fear of God. That's what 2 Corinthians 7.1 says. We should perfect holiness in the fear of God. Why should a Christian fear God? I think we should fear God because of what we're going to learn in Hebrews 12. What does Hebrews 12 say? It says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Reverse parent, you have never disciplined your children just for fun. Sort of like, hey, I can make you do whatever I want. No, you discipline your children when their character or, or their actions needs shaping. When does God discipline us? When does God chasten us? He chastens us when we walk away. When we walk away from him, he says, stop that. And I don't know what all the means are that he uses. I have some ideas. But he uses things in our life to get us to turn back and say, I'm sorry. I've done wrong. And we come back close to God. When you are tempted to sin, there ought to be a certain respect of God's chastening that says, I'm not going to do it. Okay? Uh, there are some things that I didn't do in my life because I knew my parents were going to say, buddy, you're in deep, deep, deep doo-doo. And they were going to enforce that with more than just words. I didn't dare rebel. Do you dare rebel against God? Do you think you can get away with it? You know, we need to warn our fellow Christians along that line. We talked about exhorting one another from, from the passage last week and the week before. We need to warn people, don't sin. It is not going to work out. We need to live in the fear of God. It doesn't mean that we should be trembling all the time. We, we don't need to tremble unless we're about to sin. <laughs> when you're living in righteousness, there's no fear. But when you start off the path, you should say, no, I will not do it because God is going to hold me to account for it. Secondly, we not only need to live in fear, but we need to live in the facts. Look at verse 2 of this passage. He said, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. This text actually reads something like this. They were evangelized just like we were evangelized. It uses the word for good news there. What, what, what was the good news that God told the people, the children of Israel in the Old Testament? He told them, look, there's going to be a terrible thing that happens here in Egypt. I'm going to slay the firstborn of, of all of Egypt. So you get in your house, you offer the sacrifice, put the blood, be ready to go. Have your clothes on, be, be ready to get out of here. And then God's going to deliver you. And then the good news was God's going to deliver you all the way into the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. 
What's the good news that's promised to, that's been preached to us? Jesus died to pay for your sin. God is going to hold everybody to account in this world, but those who are covered under the blood of Jesus are not going to be called to account for their sin. That is wonderful good news. And God wants you in that delivered state to live in a righteous way in Christ. You see, what seems to have been going on to the recipients of the letter of the book of Hebrews is that they were going to mix up the message of God. In the book of Galatians, we read about the mixing up of that message. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, please. Galatians chapter 3. This is the same, the same problem, if you will. Same problem that was going on then, the same problem that's going on today. Galatians 3.1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you or tricked you or fooled you that you should not obey the truth? See, they were told the gospel truth that Jesus saves and him alone, but they were being fooled. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit, or, or we could paraphrase that, did you get saved by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, he does it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are of the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The particular problem with the, the folks who are receiving the book of Hebrews seems to be the same problem, and that's this. They said, yes, you need to believe in Jesus, but there's some other stuff you need to do also. Now, here's the problem with that, folks. Anytime you step out of God's truth into your own version of the truth, you step away from the potential of God's sweet spot in your life. No matter how wonderful you think those works are, they will not result in you enjoying the rest of God. Yesterday in the Bellingham Herald, you'll want a copy of this, Jeff, for your files. A fine elder of the Mormon church spelled it right out like we've all been saying for years, and they've been trying to skate away from it. Salvation consists of two elements. Resurrection from the dead and the right to live in God's kingdom throughout eternity. Resurrection is the permanent reuniting of one's spirit with his restored physical body in a form capable of living forever. Jesus Christ's resurrection ensured that this restoration of body and spirit will be available to all who have lived on this earth. However, all are not guaranteed of eternal life in the presence of God. We're kind of agreeing so far. That life will be determined by what we have done with this life. Now we're starting to not agree. In the resurrection, he quotes Revelation, we will be judged according to our works. Well, he is. I'm not going to be. That is a worrisome thought. Amen. Everyone, except little children, 
have knowingly done things that are wrong, and some have done deeds that are evil beyond expression. On the other hand, many have done virtuous acts, worthy of the highest commendation. But only one has lived a life, lived a life perfectly without the taint of wrongdoing. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus told his apostles that he was the way by which mankind would come to the Father. He also said that a person who truly loved him and the Father would keep his commandments. And then he goes on, and I'll read one more little paragraph. In this instance, faith requires action, namely the effort to repent and change one's ways and to accept baptism by immersion, which effects the removal of past sins that have sullied life. You know how the Mormons think they're going to get to heaven? By believing in Jesus. You ask a Mormon, they'll say they believe in Jesus as their Savior. And by living a good life. You know what, folks? When you mix anything with faith in Christ, you are not a true believer in Christ. That's the bottom line. That's what God is warning them about. That's why he's saying, if you do this, you will not achieve my rest. It's wonderful that they want to live a good life. I wish everybody in this world would want to live a good life. But you are not going to get to heaven by anything but the finished work of Christ. If you're trusting in anything you have done and not Jesus alone, you are not trusting the facts of the gospel. He goes on to say we need to know the facts. Jesus died for our sins. We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. We must trust in Christ. We must do that, and then we must believe it. We must know the facts and believe them. Turn with me to Romans 4. It's a great, a great poignant truth about Abraham because this faith in God has to go beyond salvation. See, I think that was the problem I think that's what the problem was with those people in the Old Testament. They believed God for salvation, but not for their daily Christian life. And there's a lot of Christians that are doing that today. Look at Romans 4.16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, that's the Jewish people, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of, whom, of he whom he believed. God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed. This is Abraham. Contrary to hope, in hope he believed so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. That's the key verse. He did not waver at the promise of God. Christian, when God tells you in James chapter 1 that difficulties are for your good, do you believe it or do you waver? Do you look up to heaven and say, God, why did you let this happen to me? If you do, you've stepped outside of God's sweet spot and you're living in your own version of Christianity. And you know what's going to happen? 
you're not going to have rest. Your soul's going to be troubled. God has made all kinds of promises to us. He's given us all kinds of commands. He tells us to tell the truth. When you go to work tomorrow and you're tempted to not tell the truth, you have a choice between living in God's rest and in letting Him take care of the details or stepping outside of God's rest and thinking, I'm going to handle it. God tells us that Abraham looked at his body and he said, it's not possible for me to conceive a child. Looked at his wife, it's not possible. I don't see how it can work. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I know what God says, but I don't see how it can work. But Abraham did not waver. He didn't, the King James said he didn't stagger. He didn't, he didn't halt between two things. He said, God can do it. And he stayed right there with God. James chapter 1 says, If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. <clears throat> but let him ask in faith with no doubting. Israel missed God's rest because they were looking for a place with no difficulties. When they heard of the giants, they immediately wanted to go back to the known life of slavery in Egypt. Now here's a little sidebar. Do you know they hadn't even seen the giants? They hadn't even seen them. You know, th th these 10 guys came back and said, oh, they're so big and we're like ants. They didn't even see the giants. You ever worry about something you haven't seen? You ever stop living for God because of something you've not even experienced yet, but you just know it's going to be so terrible that you've got to go your own way? Well, you're just like the children of Israel then. What if they had said, we can do it with God? They would have went marching up there into Israel, and, and they would have all took out giants like David did. Man, they would have had some stories to tell their grandkids. How do you want to live? Do you want to wander in the wilderness until it's time for God to take you home? Or, or do you say, no, I want to kill some giants. Some giants of sin in my life. Some giants of witnessing. Some giants of ministry. Whatever they are, I want to be in victory with God. We've got to believe. You know, there's all kinds of illustrations of belief. I want to give you one today, and that's this. Get off the fence. This wavering thing is about being on the fence. Well, you know, I believe in God, but, you know, I'm not quite, you know. And, uh, get off the fence and get on God's side of the pasture. Well, the fourth thing we've got to do, not only fear and fact and faith, but we've got to follow. Look what he says here uh, back in Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 6, therefore it remains, it's still an opportunity for some people to enter this rest, and those to whom it first preached did not enter, why? Because of disobedience. Obedience to God is the product of fear, fact, and faith. If you fear God, if you know the truth, if you believe the truth, you will live the way God wants you to live. If you are not living the way God wants you to live, there's something wrong in your fear, in your facts, and in your faith. It's all together. It's not one or the other. You cannot live a genuinely righteous life without truly believing in God. And you do not truly believe in God while you're living in sin. 
Don't, don't ever try to convince me of that. M.R. DeHaan sums it up quite well when he said this. Are you a disciple of Christ? And that is an obedient, living Christian? Or just a saint bound for heaven, enjoying God's social security and unemployment benefits, but unwilling to fight his battle or go to work? Yeah. Another author said this, Israel's rest involved the conquest of these possessing enemies. But the book of Judges is the record of their failure through unbelief, compromise, and even in the case of the tribe of Dan, rebellion and idolatry. If we would, get, if we would obtain God's rest, we've got to live an obedient life. Well, the, the last thing we need to understand about God's rest is the moment of God's rest. Look at verse 7. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today. And then chapter 3, verse 15, while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice. Chapter 3, verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice. What he chronicles in, 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 uh, in Hebrews 4, 1 through 13, he chronicles the development of the rest and the offer of rest from God. He says, when God got done with creation, he rested. Now, God didn't rest because he was tired. And God's rest didn't mean that he was done doing everything. It means that he had finished his work. And he said to the people of Israel, I want you to rest and I want you to live in my rest. And when they failed to come up into the land and conquer the land, they, they, you might say they ignored God's offer. And so later on, that, that promise is repeated through David in the Psalms. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He says there's still an offer of rest. And now he says to these Hebrew Christians in, in, in the, you know, the first century, he said there's still an opportunity to enter the rest of God, to live in God's sweet spot. What I'm telling you today is there's still an opportunity for you to live in the rest of God. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 6. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The Sabbath remains in that it is still available. You may still enter in. If you are here and you don't know Christ today, you are welcome to enter God's rest for the first time. If you are here and know Christ, the question is for you as well. Are you living in the rest of God or living outside of it? This last week I had the chance to be part of two funerals, to attend one and to uh, speak in one. The other uh, funeral besides Ruth Smith was the, uh, the father of a good friend of mine. He's a, a my friend is a godly man, known him for many years, but most likely his father was not a Christian. And it was interesting to hear people share about him at the funeral. And he was a good man, well-liked, the standing room only at the Jerns uh, Memorial uh, Chapel. And uh, people all said real nice things. One of, uh, maybe a nephew or something like that said, this guy was a great guy, and he laid it all out, and it said his good works reach right to the gate of heaven. They might reach to the gate, but they don't go any farther if Christ isn't in you. 
how much more a blessing for me to be here yesterday at Ruth Smith's memorial and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she is with the Lord, not because of her good works, but because of the good work of Jesus. I hope you're living in God's sweet spot today. If you're not, I'd love to help you find that spot, to find out what's keeping you from being there. Heavenly Father, thank you for making it possible for us to have a great life now and heaven later. What, what a good God you are to us. I pray that everyone here is living in your rest today. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to Hope for Life, the broadcast teaching ministry of the First Baptist Church of Ferndale, Washington. You can learn more about our ministry on the internet at www.ferndalebaptist.com or you can contact us by mail at First Baptist Church, P.O. Box 69, Ferndale, Washington, 98248. Telephone 360-384-3111. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 1045 a.m. Our prayer is that God's Word will give you hope for life.